invite you to grab a Bible and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1 is where we'll spend the majority of our time in God's Word this morning. And like Pastor Sean just said, it's where we'll spend the majority of our time in God's Word over the next eight weeks. So Nehemiah 1, feel free to use the table of contents if you need to. And right off the bat, I actually want to tell you, or share with you why. Why Nehemiah? Why are we going to spend two months walking through the Old Testament history book of Nehemiah? It's because Nehemiah had a vision for the kingdom of God. Nehemiah had a vision for the kingdom of God. He had a passion, a zeal for the kingdom of God and to see God's kingdom go forward. And we're going to see over the next eight weeks that the vision and mission that Nehemiah had for God's kingdom in the Old Testament actually isn't all that different than the vision and mission that Christ has given his church here in the New Testament. That God brought Nehemiah to Jerusalem to rebuild walls, to rebuild the kingdom for a purpose, and that God in his grace has brought us here to Williamsburg, a humble local church, to help advance the kingdom of God through the Great Commission. And we'll see this morning that that purpose That purpose that God has given us has to be the centerpiece, the focus of our lives. I came across a quote this week from a guy named Robert Goizeta, who was the CEO of Coca-Cola in the 1990s. Listen to this guy's vision for soda for a minute. I think we have it on the screen. CEO of Coke. All of us in the Coca-Cola family wake up each morning knowing that every single one of the world's 5.6 billion people will get thirsty that day and that we're the ones with the best opportunity to refresh them. Our task is simple. Make Coca-Cola and our other products available, affordable, and acceptable to them, quenching their thirst and providing them a perfect moment of relaxation. If we do this, if we make it impossible for these 5.6 billion people to escape Coca-Cola, then we assure our future success for many years to come. And I love this last part. He says, doing anything else is not an option. He's talking about soda. And I'm convinced, and I think we're going to see that a similar principle applies for us today. We're going to talk about far weightier matters than soda, but the same conclusion applies for the Christian. You're a follower of Jesus in this room. Then the mission that Christ has given his church in a lost and dying world is so critical It's so important that doing anything else is not an option. That's what we'll see from our time in God's word today. And so we have much to learn and apply from the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. So here's my plan this morning. I'm going to pray. We'll spend a few minutes setting the context for Nehemiah when we walk through an Old Testament history book. I really want to make sure everyone's on the same page where we are in the grand redemptive arc of scripture. And then we'll pull out three key lessons, three key lessons from Nehemiah 1 that we can apply as individuals who are following Jesus and as a church family. So let's pray. Ask the Lord to bless this time. Father, we thank you so much again for your grace in this gathering. We pray now as we turn our attention to the preached word of God that your word would do what you says said it does. God, that it would penetrate hearts, that it would be alive and active, that it would not return void. So help me, God, to preach clearly. And I pray for receptive hearts this morning, that we would be challenged and comforted and that the church of God would be built up. And as always, we pray Psalm 119. Open our eyes 
that we may behold wonderful things from your law. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so here's what's going on in Nehemiah 1. The book of Nehemiah was written between 445 and 420 BC. And it continues the story from the book of Ezra of God's people, the nation of Israel, returning from the promised land after being exiled in Babylon for 70 years. Some of the earliest copies of the scriptures actually had Ezra and Nehemiah joined together in one book, which makes sense because if you've read them before, you'll know they're telling two sides of the same story. Now, in order to grasp what's really going on here in Nehemiah, I need to give us the 30,000 foot flyover view of the history of Israel. And I promise I'll go quickly. I know this isn't riveting to some of you, but it'll help us get some handles. It'll help us understand what's going on in the book of Nehemiah, especially if you're new to Christianity or just checking out the church. So when we say Israel, we have to know that Israel was the chosen people of God, God's holy nation. The Bible calls them a people for his own possession. Beginning with his covenant to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis 15, God had been building up a nation through Abraham to basically do two things. One, to display his glory to the world, and two, to bless the world through this one special nation. And much of the book of Genesis is dedicated to Abraham's family and his descendants who eventually wind up enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Those 400 years go by and God raises up a man named Moses in the book of Exodus to miraculously rescue his people out of slavery in Egypt. In Joshua, we see the Israelites take the promised land, the land of Canaan that was promised to their forefather Abraham. And then centuries go by where Israel is led and ruled by prophets and judges and kings. And then eventually they split into civil war and dissolve into two kingdoms. Throughout this time, the spiritual life of Israel had become a mess. The spiritual life of the southern kingdom of Judah had become a mess. Idolatry was everywhere. Immorality was rampant. And the people had largely forgotten the God who had made them a nation. They had forgotten God who had rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. But the Bible tells us that God had not forgotten them. God had never forgotten his people. And throughout this process, God had been with them. He had been patient with them. He had tolerated their sin. He had given them his law to live by in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God had promised to his people that repeated disobedience would result in exile, that they would lose the land that God had promised to Abraham. And this is exactly what happens. In 2 Kings chapter 25, this finally happens after being warned by different prophets for years and years and years. The nation of Israel and the nation of Judah go into exile. God's people are taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians and brought to Babylon. But even in Babylon, God had still not forgotten his people. Jeremiah chapter 25 verse 12, God promises the Israelites that their exile in Babylon would last 70 years, just 70 years. And this is exactly what happens. Babylon falls to Cyrus the Great and the Persians and Ezra chapter one opens with the fulfilled prophecy of Jeremiah 25. God puts it in the heart of Cyrus the king to bring the Israelites out of captivity and back into Jerusalem. So the book of Ezra tells that story how they're brought out of captivity back into Jerusalem. And Ezra tells us that they rebuilt the temple, that they put into place some reforms. And that brings us to Nehemiah chapter one. All right, everyone take a deep breath. Nehemiah chapter one. You need to have that context. I want to read the first 
four verses together, and then we'll walk verse by verse through this text. This is the word of God. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. Verse three, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is a great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So here's what's happening. Nehemiah was a Jew living in Susa, which was the summer home of the Persian kings at the time. When he finds out, he gets this news that the people of God back in Jerusalem were in trouble. The text says they were in great trouble and shame. Verse 11 tells us that Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. Now, cupbearer was a pretty influential role. If you were the cupbearer to the king, you got to spend time with the king almost every day. You had some influence over him. And odds are, if you were the cupbearer, you had some kind of luxury. You lived in comfort. It was a pretty cushy job, but it did have some risks. If you're a parent in this room, you could probably relate to this, but the cupbearer was literally a poison checker which meant that if the king had some wine, the cupbearer would have to try the wine before passing it on to the king. I do the same thing with my five-year-old and Oreos, just trying to keep her safe. But the point is, Nehemiah enjoyed some influence and he enjoyed some prominence and luxury with the king. Most of the Jews this time had returned from exile. The 70 years in Babylon was over. And so Nehemiah takes this opportunity in chapter one to ask his brother how they were doing and how the exiles were faring in Jerusalem. This leads us to the first thing I want you to see in your notes. Number one, Nehemiah had a heart for God's people. Nehemiah had a heart for God's people. We see this both in his asking in verse two and his reacting in verse four. Nehemiah cared deeply about the people of God, so much so that after hearing that the remnants, the people left in Jerusalem, they're not doing well. Nehemiah sits down to weep and to mourn, to fast and to pray. And why? Because he's broken over what's going on with God's people. He's broken to the point of weeping. Now, just in case you're tempted to think otherwise here, Nehemiah was about as manly as it gets. And we'll see this later on in the book, but he's a strong leader. In chapter 13, when some people were violating the Sabbath, he told them that if you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Another place in chapter 13, when he finds out that some of the exiles had married women that didn't worship God, the Bible says that he confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Nehemiah was a man. He was a man's man. And he was grieved down to his soul because of the state of God's people. He was grieved because he cared deeply about the people of God. Now, here's what this shows us. What we weep about demonstrates to us what we value. And this was clear for Nehemiah, and I think it's clear for us. And so ask yourself the question this morning, what are you weeping over? What am I weeping over? What grieves your soul right now, Christian? What stirs up your soul to anger or sadness? Like, are we a people that grieve over the things of the world or do we grieve over the things of God? I found in my own life that one of the best ways to identify what I most value 
is to see how angry or emotional I get when that thing is messed with. Let me give you an example. I never want to call out your sin without first calling out mine. And so in different seasons of my walk with Jesus, time has been an idol for me. Controlling my time is something that I've been tempted to value over the things of God. And while wanting to be timely is not a bad thing, if I hold it too close, it can very easily become an idol. And the warning signs for me go off when I start to get overly frustrated or irritated when my schedule is messed with. And I like controlling my schedule down to the minutes. I, I can think of one specific example. A few months ago, we just moved in and our neighbor across the street, or actually our neighbor right next to me, does not know Jesus as far as I know. And I was walking out to my car, getting ready to go to work. And he stopped me. We started talking and he asked about what I did. And I shared with him that I was a pastor. And that opened the door to all kinds of questions. When people find out that I'm a pastor, usually one of the first questions they ask is, do you work on days other than Sunday? And of course not. <laughs> like Sunday... That's it. All I do is Sunday. But I was sharing with this guy about what I did and here's what happened. And honestly, this is a moment of conviction in my own life. I kind of blew him off because I was in a hurry to get to work and start on some project that needed to be started. And as I was driving away, the Holy Spirit just put it right on my heart that in that moment, I cared about keeping my schedule more than I cared about the state of my neighbor's soul. I know that when people ask me about being a pastor, it's very easy for me to transition into the truth of the gospel and to share with them the hope that we have in Jesus. But in that moment, I didn't do it because I didn't want my schedule messed with. That was a warning sign to me. So think about it in your own life. What frustrates you right now? What grieves you right now? Because that'll tell you what you truly care about. Like when's the last time that you wept, that we wept corporately? over the state of someone's soul that doesn't know Jesus. I mean, do we believe this book when it says that if you know Jesus, you'll spend eternity with him in paradise. And if you don't, you'll spend eternity separated from him in a literal place called hell. Like that's the truth that we say we believe. And yet the things that bother us are often the things of the world. And in Nehemiah chapter one, Nehemiah is grieving over the people of God. He's grieving over the things of God because that's where his heart was. It was with God's people. And we see this grief, this mourning for two reasons. Letter A in your notes. He's mourning first over circumstances. Nehemiah is mourning over circumstances. He gets this report in verse three that the remnant is in great trouble and shame and that the walls and the gates of Jerusalem are broken down. Now, to be clear, this is a new report. So Nehemiah isn't hearing right now about the first exile. He's not grieving about the exile into Babylon. That had happened 150 years prior. That'd be like us grieving over a battle in the civil war. This is a new event. And Ezra chapter four gives us some insight into what's going on here. In Ezra four, we see that King Artaxerxes had ordered the work of rebuilding Jerusalem to stop, that no rebuilding should continue. And that's the report that Nehemiah is getting, that while the temple had been rebuilt, that things were looking really good, now all of a sudden, the work of God in Jerusalem had been stopped and the people were in trouble. And that's what causes him to grieve. He's mourning over the circumstances of God's people. Now, again, let me bring this home to our lives for a second. We want to be the kind of Christians. We should strive to be the kind of church that mourns and grieves when God's people are grieving. Romans chapter 12, verse 15 says that we as a church are to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep. And so 
here at Coastal, we want to have the mindset that when one member suffers, we suffer with them. We weep with them. When one marriage in this room is struggling, we all want to feel it. When one family is weeping and praying over an adult child who doesn't know Jesus, then we as a church, we come around them and we weep and pray until that prodigal returns home. Like when we go through miscarriage and cancer, any kind of suffering that might come our way, we come together as a church to weep and cry out to the Lord as one body. Because the Bible tells us that when one part of the body is grieving, we are all grieving. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 puts it this way. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And what this does, church, is it shatters the individualistic Lone Ranger type of Christianity that I think is so prevalent in our culture today. We are not created to follow Jesus by ourselves. God has created us to follow Jesus in community, so much so that we bear each other's burdens in ways that are so deep that it affects our souls in Nehemiah 1 kind of ways, that we grieve and we mourn and we pray and we fast. Remember where Nehemiah was? He was in Susa. Susa was about a thousand miles from Jerusalem. And so getting this news, it would have been really easy for Nehemiah to think they are a world away. Between me and God, I'm good. I'm obeying God. My relationship with God is fine. Why does what's going on with God's people have to affect me? Nehemiah didn't have that mindset. He felt the burden of God's people in his own heart. He was mourning over circumstances and then letter B, mourning over sin. Nehemiah was mourning over sin. We're going to see that Nehemiah continues this grieving and that this includes genuine and heartfelt confession of sin. Let's keep reading in verse five. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So the first thing that Nehemiah does in this prayer, after acknowledging the greatness of God, is to confess that both he and his people have sinned. And this sin causes him to grieve, which is the proper response for someone who claims to love God. I want to make something really clear for us. In this prayer, Nehemiah is not connecting the people's present circumstances with their present sin. He's not saying that the rebuilding was stopped in Ezra 4 because the people were sinning. Now, I say this because if we're not careful, we sometimes do this in our own lives as Christians. We can look at the different ways that we suffer. Maybe in some of the ways that I just mentioned, and think that somehow we are suffering or this or that event happened in our lives because God is punishing us for disobedience. And church, that's not true. It's not how God deals with us as Christians. Now, there are times in the Bible when the scriptures do connect circumstances with sin. For example, when we talked about this, God promised that disobedience would result in exile for the Israelites. But there are also times in the Bible when God's people suffer not as a result of their own sin, but simply due to the providence of God. 
which we'll get to in a minute. And there are countless examples of this in the scriptures. So we as New Testament Christians, we can't look at our suffering, the ways we suffer, and think that God is punishing me for something I did. It's really, really important for us to understand. We have to know that in Christ, the punishment for our sin was once and for all poured out on Jesus on the cross. And then when we suffer, we come alongside each other in our suffering. We have to keep that at the forefront of our minds, that God does not punish Christians. He disciplines us to be sure. And Hebrews chapter 12 unpacks this at length, but punishment is intended to bring down. Discipline is intended to bring us up. Hebrews 12 says that it yields a harvest of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so For the Christian, because of the work of Jesus on the cross, no punishment for sin remains. And we praise God. We praise God every single week for this truth. That's why we're gathering this morning as forgiven people. And if you're here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, I want more than anything for you to experience this type of forgiveness. We see that Nehemiah grieved and confessed sin. You can do the same thing by repenting of your sin believing in the message of the gospel, that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross for your sin and that he bodily raised back to life, you can receive Christ and experience forgiveness. And then we as forgiven people can entrust ourselves to the good and gracious providence of God, even in our circumstances and our sin. This leads us to number two, an understanding of God's providence. Second lesson we see in this text it's critical for us to have an understanding of God's providence. Now, I use the word providence intentionally here. I think that many of us, if you've been around the church for a while, you're probably familiar with the idea of sovereignty. We know that when we say that God is sovereign, it means he's in control. Now, providence takes sovereignty one step further. A helpful way to think about providence is that God is in control of all things with a purpose. He's controlling all things with a purpose. And sometimes that purpose is a mystery to us. But here's the thing, and I think we see this in our text today, the act of prayer is a declaration of trust in God's providence. But why is that the case? It's because when we pray, what we're doing is we're admitting that we are not the ones in control, that we as human beings aren't in control, that our purposes, our human purposes, aren't ultimately the ones that matter, that God is in control and that ultimately his purposes are the ones that will stand. And so we pray and Nehemiah prays here in chapter one because he knows that the providential God of the universe is controlling all things. And that by a mystery and a miracle, God invites us into that providential purpose through the act of prayer. And so I'll show us this in two ways in this chapter. Letter A, we see Nehemiah modeling scripture-saturated prayer. Scripture-saturated prayer. So let's pick back up in verses eight and nine. Nehemiah is still praying. He says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me, keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. In this prayer, Nehemiah is just quoting scripture back to God. 
He's reminding God of what he's already promised. When he says in verse eight, remember, it's always a key word for us in the scriptures. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. He then goes on to quote Deuteronomy chapter 28, which is the passage that promises that if God's people would return, God would bring them back home. Now, here's the takeaway for us. God is always faithful to do what he's already promised he'll do in his word. Always, like 100% of the time. So when we pray, strengthen us, help us, uphold us with your righteous right hand. We know that God answers that prayer all the time because he said he would, he promised he would in Isaiah 41. Well, we're brokenhearted. And I'm sure that's a number of us in this room this morning. We can pray, be close to us, Lord, and know that he will be because he promises he will in Psalm 34. We can draw near to God and know with a certainty that he will draw near to us because he's promised that he would in James 4. So here's the beauty in this. When we learn, we practice the discipline of praying scripture back to God, these scripture-saturated prayers, we find that supernaturally what God does is he aligns our human will with his divine will. It happens slowly but surely. It happens with Nehemiah. And as we'll see in the coming chapters, this alignment of wills gave Nehemiah great confidence to actually move into action. Here's the second thing we see in this prayer, letter B, genuine intercession. So scripture-saturated prayer and genuine intercession. We've seen that Nehemiah cares deeply for God's people. And we see in this text, that he prays deeply for God's people. And I think really this whole prayer shows us a heart posture worth emulating. It's someone who's willing to stand in the gap for the people of God and for the things of God. Now, let me apply this real simply as a church family, grand opening Sunday. If we want God to bring about healthy spiritual growth to this local church, If we want God to to bring lost people to saving faith in Jesus, if we want God to see kids discipled in the Lord, if we want God to bring about people coming to faith and then being baptized, if we want God to have believers discipled in spiritually healthy ways in this church, then we have to understand, Coastal, that the foundation of that work is God. The foundation of that work must be genuine time seeking both the face and the hand of God. Every movement of God in church history has started with believers on their knees, crying out for God to move. And so here's my challenge for you. If you don't already make praying for this local church a regular part, not just of your week on Sunday, but make it a regular part of your day. Like pray for our staff team. Pray for our volunteer teams. Pray for each other. I mean, that's why we get in small groups so we can know intimate needs and pray for one another. We want to have the mindset here in Williamsburg of Psalm 127.1 that tells us if the Lord does not build the house, then the builders labor in vain. Listen, we can set up chairs and do kids ministry and sing songs and put out signs, but if God is not blessing this work, then nothing will happen. We want to see this actually be a vessel in the hand of God to see people come to faith in Jesus. We have to pray. And so we pray with Nehemiah, oh God, move so that you alone would get the glory. That's my prayer for this church. And I think that's an easy takeaway for us from Nehemiah 1. All right, finally, the third key lesson we see in this text. Nehemiah had a zeal for God's kingdom. 
And so we see here a heart for God's people, right understanding of the providence of God. And finally, we see that Nehemiah had a zeal for God's kingdom. Now, I want to zoom out just for a little bit on this last point. Remember where Nehemiah was again. Remember his setting. Until he gets this news in Nehemiah chapter one that the rebuilding had been stopped, Nehemiah and really every Jew in the Middle East had to have been thinking that the kingdom of God was about to be fulfilled that it was right around the corner. And they had every indication that this was about to happen, that the Jeremiah 25 prophecy had been fulfilled. The 70 years in exile had had passed. The exiles were back in their own land. In Ezra, the temple is rebuilt. So the Jews living in Jerusalem and in Nehemiah's area, they all thought that they were living in the end times, that the kingdom of God was right around the corner. And we know sitting here in 2023 that they were wrong that God wasn't about to usher in the kingdom in 445 BC. So I'm going to give you, give us a little bit of a spoiler alert for the next eight weeks. Nehemiah is going to go on to be somewhat successful in Jerusalem. He's going to go on to be somewhat successful in helping the people of God. And ultimately he will be successful in rebuilding the walls of the city. But Nehemiah won't be successful in changing their hearts between his leadership and the ministry of Ezra, they they put into place some really good reforms. And for a while, God's people shape up for a little bit, but then almost inevitably, they fall back into the same cycles of sin and idolatry that they were in before the exile even happened. And I think we could spend a whole sermon on why their reforms didn't work. But at the end of the day, I think the answer is easy. Rebuilding walls doesn't change hearts. Keeping the Sabbath doesn't change hearts. External obedience, all the good things that they were going to go do in Jerusalem doesn't change hearts because the people of God didn't need better behavior. They needed new hearts. And no amount of civil or religious reforms could bring those about. They needed a heart changer. And here's the thing, Coastal, God knew this. God was not surprised by this. And so tucked away in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter nine, verses 24 through 27, written while the exiles were still exiled in Babylon, God comes in and he offers the people a better word. While their physical exile would last 70 years, they would have to wait 70 times seven for an anointed one, for a Messiah to come. And Daniel nine says that this Messiah would come to bring restoration. And then Daniel 9 says that this Messiah, this anointed one, would be cut off from his people. Now, this gets really good here. And so if you're not tracking with me, let's do some simple math. 70 times 7 is what? Yeah, 490. 490 years. And so if you fast forward 490 years from the time when God's people were in exile in Babylon, you would be in Jerusalem. At the exact same time, an unconventional rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth was starting to gain in popularity. And this Jesus was different than any other prophet or any other priest that had come before him. Jesus was healing people. This Jesus was raising people from the dead. And Jesus was claiming not just to be God's representative, but Jesus was claiming to be God himself. And this Jesus wasn't interested in moral reforms or behavior modification, but he was the heart changer. 
He was the heart changer that Nehemiah needed. And he came to remove hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh. He came to destroy hearts that were dead in sin and bring about alive hearts that were alive to the glory of God. And then this Jesus, just like Daniel 9 says, was cut off. We know he died on the cross for the sin of the world was resurrected three days later, ushering in what generations of Jews, what Nehemiah had hoped for, the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. And so that's where we are right now, church. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Jesus has come and the kingdom is here. Not consummated, that'll happen on the day he returns, but absolutely fulfilled. And then Jesus, the king of his kingdom, has given his people marching orders for advancing his kingdom. We see this in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. We call this the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Church, we must have a zeal for his kingdom and we must have a willingness to sacrifice to obey his commission. This is letter A. A zeal for the kingdom does require sacrifice. A zeal for the kingdom does require sacrifice. Look back with me at Nehemiah 1.11. It's this reminder that Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. Again, it's this position of comfort position of relatively high esteem. And so for Nehemiah to act, gets this terrible news, he's grieved in his soul. For Nehemiah to actually act on his grief, for him to act on his prayer, sacrifice would be required. He could lose his job. We'll see next week, he could lose his life, his social status, his way of living. Everything could be gone if he acts on this prompting. Now think about where you are right now, Christian. What are you, what am I sacrificing right now to help fulfill the Great Commission? Like if someone were to look at your life, to take an honest look at your life right now, would it be evident that you have a zeal for accomplishing the Great Commission here in Williamsburg? Would it be evident that you have a zeal for accomplishing the Great Commission around the world? Like for some of you, this is going to mean sacrifice. For all of us, this is really going to mean sacrifice. And it's going to mean sacrifice in different ways. For some of you, it might mean sacrificing more of your time. Again, that's the way that God has been working on me this year. It means, God, I'm willing to lay down my time. And that might mean I serve more. That might mean I invite my neighbors over for dinner, even though it's going to be awkward and I'd rather spend a relaxing night watching TV. It might mean saying, God, use my time however you want to use my time. It might mean we sacrifice our treasure. Might mean we sacrifice our treasure. We're going to actually talk later this fall about a creative way that we as a church are really raising money to help fulfill the Great Commission, to plant more campuses, to plant more churches so that the, the name of Jesus would go out. But think just individually between you and the Lord right now. Like, is your giving sacrificial? The Bible says where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. So the, here's the check that I always do in my own life. If I were to look at my bank statement, you would see what I prioritize. What do you prioritize? And are you willing to give sacrificially to help fulfill the Great Commission? For some of you, it might be sacrificing more of your talent. 
Like in a room this size, in a gathering of this size, we have so many talents. There are people that can stand up here and sing and lead worship joyfully with talent, with great grace. There are people that can be patient and hold our kids. There are people, by God's grace, who have the talent of setting up chairs. We need every single one of those talents. Here's where, here's where I'm going to meddle a little bit, especially over the next couple of weeks. God has gifted some of you to be small group leaders and you're not being small group leaders because you want the comfort of being in a small group and not leading one. And man, I think you saw it. I asked our small group leaders to stand. We have eight, depending on how you count, nine small groups here at Coastal right now. And we have about 300 people attending our church right now. I want to be able to stand up here and say, get in a small group and have somewhere for you to go. And so for some of you who have been at Coastal for years and years and years, now is your time to use the talent that God has given you to lead a small group so that more and more people could feel welcomed here so they could connect, grow, and serve here. Here's the point. It's going to cost you something. If we actually want this mission to go out, it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost me something. Last one, letter B, and I'll invite the band up with this and we'll get ready to sing. Zeal for the kingdom does not require calling. So it does require sacrifice. It'll require sacrifice from all of us. It won't require calling. You'll notice, I found this really interesting as I was studying it this week, that nowhere in Nehemiah 1 is Nehemiah told by God to go back to Jerusalem. In the coming weeks, you'll see this in the word. Nowhere in Nehemiah is God telling Nehemiah, go rebuild the walls. There's not a burning bush moment for Nehemiah. There's no writing in the sky for Nehemiah. He didn't wait for a calling. What Nehemiah did was he saw an urgent need, he prayed, and then he acted. I think the same thing applies for us, except we do have a calling. We have Matthew 28, the Great Commission. We just read it. Christ has commanded us to go and make disciples. And so you don't need to wait to feel like making disciples to go make disciples. Jesus has told us to. This is the last thing he told his church is go and make disciples. And so our decision when we read a text like Matthew 28 is not if I feel called, it's am I being obedient right now or am I being disobedient right now? Those are our two options. Like think back to the beginning of our time. The CEO of Coca-Cola said doing anything else is not an option. He's talking about soda, church. Talking about souls. We're talking about something that matters far more and for us as a local church, doing anything else is not an option. So it's my prayer that over the next week, eight weeks, as we walk through this history book of Nehemiah, we would see that this mission that we have is really, really urgent, that it really matters. And so here's how I'm going to end our time. If you came in this morning and you received a bulletin, you might have one of these. It's called a Reach 3 card. If you do, could you hold it up? I want to see it. You received one of these on the way and hold it up. Perfect. All right. Here's how I want to end our time today. It's a grand opening Sunday. We got a lot of people in here that have not been with us so far. I'm so glad you're here. We got people that have been at Coastal for 10 years. We got everyone in the middle. Um, my hope for this local church as your pastor is that God would use this church family over the next, let's say, four months leading up to Christmas time to make disciples, to make disciples to reach the lost world around us, to disciple people in this church body and to share the good news of Jesus with people outside of this church body. So here's the ask today. I'm gonna to give us a minute of silence and the band can play behind me, that's fine. But I'm gonna give, give us a minute of silence where between you and the Lord, you pray and ask God, God, would you bring to my mind three people that you want me to reach for the cause of Christ this fall? Three people. 
and think broadly about this. These could be people in your classes. I see we got a ton of student athletes, got a ton of William Mary students in here. I'm so glad that you all are here. Think about how God has placed you in your campus strategically to reach people for Jesus. This could be your workplace. Think about people at your jobs that don't know Jesus. Might one of those names fit well on this card? Think about people in your own families that don't know Jesus. Think about people in your neighborhoods. I'm thinking about my neighbor. Think about your friends. Think about Christmas Eve, right? We're going to fill this room on Christmas Eve, Lord willing. We're going to preach the gospel of the incarnated Christ. Might one of these people be blessed by a Christmas Eve invite? I know it's September, right? But Christmas will be here before we know it. So church, take a moment. Just between you and the Lord, I'm going to do this too. And think about three people. And then just slip that in your Bible, put it in your pocket, put it somewhere where you won't lose it. Because we'll refer to this again throughout the fall. Take a minute between you and God. Like if everyone in this room, which would be insane, right? If everyone in this room reached three people for Christ in the fall of 2023, we'd be at three services by like November. I don't even know that I want that. But God, may it happen. May it happen. Like may God use this group of people who have the hope of the gospel to reach a lost and dying world with the hope of Jesus. Like we sang about it this morning. Like there's nothing like God there's nothing like God. And yet we're going to go back into our communities who are striving after something that'll, like Pastor Hunter prayed, satisfy their souls. And we have the one thing that will. We have Jesus. And so if you actually believe that Jesus is the answer, if you believe that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him, then take this seriously. Ask God, what might you do with my life this fall so that the church would be built up and that the name and fame of Jesus would go out? So let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this gathering this morning. Thank you for this local church that you are building. I thank you for four incredible Sundays in August, leading up to a grand opening here in September. God, we praise you for your grace in this gathering. I know that it's been a much anticipated one for a lot of people. I know I've been so excited about it, God. But I thank you for the privilege of getting to shepherd this church. I pray now for us as a church family that we would take these cards that you would bring people to our minds in our lives right now that don't know Jesus and that you would help us, that you would help us, oh God, reach them with the gospel of Christ. That we would share with them that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That he was resurrected back to life so that we could have forgiveness and reconciliation and be with Jesus in eternity forever. So I pray, God, that you would use us here we are, Lord, send us. And so we thank you for this time. God, I pray that as we sing, you would be a joyful moment. God, I even pray for our fellowship outside of the lawn here in a couple of minutes. God, I pray that we would enjoy fellowship with each other. We would get to know one another, that people would introduce each other to people that don't know. God, that the church would be built up, that this would be home, that this would be all for so many people, God. But that you would use us to help fulfill the Great Commission, the mission that you have given your church. It's in Jesus' name I pray.